Welcome, everyone. This is the Virtually Church Podcast, a podcast dedicated to thinking more deeply about the differences in values between church and technology. I'm Taylor Mason, and I'm hosting this podcast alongside Jordan Mason and Jeremy Hall. Today, we just want to note, uh, please, if you get a chance, uh, rate us on iTunes and subscribe to our podcast. This is a way for people to find us. So if you've enjoyed the past five episodes and uh, a way to say thank you or to connect is by rating us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, leave us a comment. It's a great way for us to be in dialogue with you. Today, we are joined by our special guest, Ben Garrett. Ben is the Innovation Programming and Operations Manager of The Hatchery at Emory University Center for Innovation. Ben's passion and experiences have centered on the creation and sustainability of nonprofits and social enterprises. He's been a first hire, facilitator, consultant, and coach for dozens of social entrepreneurs. These roles have afforded him the opportunity to do everything from lead strategic planning retreats, raise funds from individuals and institutional grant makers, invent a cryptocurrency, and explore experimental pedagogies. Prior to the hatchery, Ben worked with Acumen as a facilitator for their social enterprise accelerator and as a community animator for their global online community and social innovators. He has worked with Civic Accelerator, an early player in the social enterprise accelerator and investment industry. Prior to his time in the social impact space, Ben worked with multiple community development nonprofits and churches in both Atlanta and Chicago. He also founded his own consulting firm, Fractal Consulting, where he works with change makers across industries at various stages of their journey. Ben holds a BA in philosophy and religion from Samford University and a master's of divinity from the University of Chicago. Ben, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks so much for having me. When you say it all like that, it actually sounds kind of impressive. It didn't feel <laughs> impressive at the time. Felt like a lot of random stuff was happening, but put all together like that, it, it sounds okay. So thank you for that kind introduction. <laughs> yeah. So Ben, I'm wondering if you could tell us just to start a little bit about what the hatchery does at Emory. Sure. So the hatchery is all about providing students with opportunities to explore innovation uh, and particularly to improve their experience as Emory students, but also to help them with their sort of long-term career and personal goals we take a really wide sort of aperture on what innovation means. So uh, in our current day and age, innovation and entrepreneurship are often sort of synonymous um, and entrepreneurship is great, uh, but it's not the only way to think about innovation. There are lots of other different kinds of processes for doing innovation. And so we take an open approach uh, to bringing lots of different kinds of innovation processes together uh, and we also really want to meet students where they are and the kinds of projects that they are working on and add capacity to those. And so those don't all fit neatly into sort of an entrepreneurial or business kind of box. Um, students are exploring lots of different things um, with nonprofits or with art or with fashion um, and all their different kind of humanities pursuits as well. And so we wanna bring innovation mindsets and processes and frameworks to help students to get better outcomes, um, sort of regardless of what their chosen trajectory is. That's really exciting stuff. And then you also, with Fractal, work with nonprofits and more churchy folks, folks more in our line of work, is that right? Yeah, it, uh, I have been really fortunate with Fractal to kind of get to run the gamut of lots of different interesting things. So I've worked with for-profit social enterprises. Um, I've done sort of innovation retreats for groups of pastors. Uh, and then I've also uh, worked with nonprofit organizations to spin up different kinds of programs. Uh, one of the things that sort of maybe want to start my own consulting firm was getting to work with people I'd like to work with and on projects that I'm really interested in. Uh, and so I have been really lucky that um, 
I get to kind of explore lots of different things that I'm interested in uh, with Fractal and um, I'm interested in lots of different things. And so Fractal kind of looks lots of different ways depending on clients, but um, the sort of like church and then like church adjacent space has definitely been a place of interest for me for a long time. And so Fractal uh, has also been a place where I've gotten to work with people who are in those two spaces. That's really cool. When we've um, talked before, you like to bring up um, user-centered design. I've been in some of your workshops where you've toyed with some of these ideas. And Sorry. Yeah, I'll send you a bill for the time. Uh, I'm actually always really energized by it, but then also not entirely sure how to bring that back to church world. Could you talk to us a little bit about what user-centered design is and why it makes any sense as one of these technologies that we can bring to bear on the work of community? Yeah, no, and I like that you point out that um, it is a a technology. Uh, I think sometimes we have a perspective on innovation that makes it seem like there are people who just are innovators and they just have sort of brilliant insights randomly and then they, you know, uh, alter science forever or like invent the next, you know, billion, multi-billion dollar company. Um, And in reality, uh, innovation is a technology. It's a set of practices. It's a set of mindsets that you can actually grow for yourself and in organizations that you're in. Uh, And so I think it's really important to highlight that it in and of itself is a technology. And yeah, user-centered design is one technology or process of innovation. Um, A big kind of proponent of it um, is a firm called IDEO. Uh, They started doing a lot of work with uh, Apple and Macintosh in the early days. Uh, So some of the things that you have probably ran into that are user-centered design from IDEO would be, uh, I think that they were helping to design the first like computer mice Um, also when you were a child and you had that big, like chubby toothbrush, uh, the, that's an IDEO design. Uh, and basically what they do, uh, is instead of sitting with their team in a room and trying to come up with really smart ideas, they go and talk to the actual users of a potential product and try to understand what the goal, what goals those users have. Uh, how they're currently trying to achieve those goals, and then in some ways engaging in a process of co-design with those users to get something that is genuinely useful for the end user. So to get to that toothbrush, uh, they went and they watched kids try to brush their teeth with adult toothbrushes. Um, And for those of you who have been around children, their manual dexterity is not always super high. Uh, And so there's a lot of like, poking themselves in the face uh, and generally uh, wreaking havoc with the adult-sized toothbrushes. Right, so, Jeremy? You, yeah, as the are you father, getting that experience firsthand? My daughter is nine months old today, and Yay. she her dexterity is indeed low on the skill tree. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, they, they looked at that and they're like, uh, this toothbrush needs to be shorter. Uh, also like kids drop it a lot cause it's too skinny. It needs to be fatter. And so that's a really like concrete example of let's watch what people are actually doing with these products and see if we can make them better, uh, have better outcomes. But what um, if I know I, what they need? Uh, you don't, I'm just kidding. So, um, <laughs> the, it's such an interesting problem, um, because the, the most challenging version of this is when you're designing for a population that you're a representative of, um, because there's this temptation to think, well, I am the pastor, a pastor. Um, so I know what pastors need. Um, but, uh, it's a sample size of one. Um, and human beings are not always amazing at self-reflection. Uh, and so, we want to get a diversity of experiences from our target audience uh, to really get the nuance of that experience and also to identify what blind spots we have about even our own experience. 
that could inform a better outcome or solution for our target audience. Um, and so this sort of process is often contrasted with what's called waterfall design, which is uh, kind of comes out of early software, but also manufacturing where you come up with the plan, you pour millions of dollars into building the plan, and then you launch the product and you see what happens. Um, and I guess if you have million dollars to burn, you can certainly give that a whirl, um, but uh, it's a big risk. And in some ways, user-centered design is a less risky way of doing innovation. So even if you're really smart, and even if you do come up with the right idea, it is risky to not work with your users first. And you can basically de-risk your innovation by getting user feedback on it earlier in the process. Uh, so those are a couple of reasons why it's a good idea, even if you're super smart and you already know everything, uh, to go and talk with your users before you start really trying to design something. So Ben, for reference of doing church in a way, this would, what I'm hearing you say is you could take the more traditional approach of, we know that this is what the congregation needs, or we know that uh, this is how to do things. This is the best way of doing things. So we do it. And then we, in a way, do you also like end up trying to convince people to accept that way of doing it? Like, you know, you created this, this new form of technology or the software, and then you go, okay, now we need to convince people that this is the right way of doing it versus what you're saying is this user-centered design of how do we do all of that hard legwork first? How do we talk to our church members, see what their needs are during this time, and then work with them to continually create and, and tweak things that meet their needs and values in a way, right? Because yeah. most of us waterfalled the, this pandemic season, didn't we? Because we went from, we, we, all, we do church a certain way, suddenly we can't. So we, us smart people in the offices who get paid and have titles, built websites and set up Zooms and engaged software and started streaming and gave it to our people and then got mad at them if they didn't come on Sunday morning to our Zoom call? Did y'all do that? I don't know. I'm not a pastor. <laughs> well, I think I think uh, from my perspective, like with Jeremy is, yeah, you in the middle of this crisis, you just did whatever was available, whatever form yeah. of technology that was presented to you that said, hey, we have a solution for meeting uh, virtually. It's called Zoom. Okay, mm -hmm. I'm going to I'm going to use that and I'm going to create it and I'm going to invite everyone to be a part of it. Or, well, because there's a time constraint, right? Like yep. with this sort of process, like user-centered design sounds like it takes time to do the research and to observe and ask people what they need or how they're going to use a product. But, you know, the pandemic happened and it was like on a Thursday, everyone's like, okay, we have to stream by Sunday. Mm -hmm. Like we don't have time to talk to people. But what's, what's kind of interesting about this and exciting about this approach is that we're discovering now that uh, we are probably going to have the time. The pandemic isn't going to go away uh, next month. Uh, we're going to have a year or two maybe of time in this space. And how are we going to use that next year or two to innovate uh, in positive ways for our church communities? Yeah, I I am very sympathetic to the situation where, yeah, it becomes clear on a Thursday that Sunday can't be what it was. Um, and I, I don't want to be too hard on pastors and churches for leaning on their expertise um, in that moment. I do wonder, uh, and you're, Jordan, you are right, that in some ways, user-centered design is a process that takes time. On the other hand, um, it could, it can be an organizational habit. In other words, the way that you could imagine a situation where churches have been using user-centered design for a year or two already. And so when the pandemic hits, 
they have systems in place to query their congregants uh, and to query local stakeholders um, and very quickly be responsive to what, um, what folks are saying. The challenge is when you don't have those kind of informational pipelines in place and you don't have the, the knee-jerk habit of trying to understand your user before you do anything. So it, it's super hard to all of a sudden just be like, oh, we're user-centered design now in the middle of a crisis. Uh, that's really hard. Um, but yeah, also Taylor, as you're pointing out, um, there have there have been uh, even from, I mean, I attend church, but I'm not a pastor. So my my perspective is in some ways an outsider perspective a little bit, but there are innovations that have been done reactively in churches over the past couple of months that I would be very interested to see what would happen if churches took a proactive response to continuing some of those reactive things that are actually working. Um, and so I, I think innovation can be reactive or proactive. Um, and it's kind of like, what, what habits do you have that inform your reaction? I like that, Ben, because, you know, we're getting further into this podcast. This is episode six. And we've been, we've, the first four episodes, we've kind of been building up this argument that technology and church have different, may have some of similar values, but may also have different values. So technology itself has values in them. And we want to explore and understand what those values are to help us moving forward. And I think what I'm excited about this episode is that there are things that churches have done to be innovative that have been helpful towards some church values. But I think uh, for a lot of church members or pastors, they haven't had the language to distinguish the good or not the good, the valuable things that fit with their church values and what they're doing technologically that might be taking away from values that are inherent and core to what it means to be a church. And um, so I think that's, that's really exciting because I'm sure as people listen along, this is the moment where they're trying to wrestle with the practical side of things like, okay, now that we've moved to Zoom, how do I stay innovative in a way, but also not lose some of the values that are important to me, which is being present or creating love or justice or peace or whatever it might be for that church. Yeah. So I think um, as I have listened to earlier episodes, I I agree that that y'all have articulated that tension really well and really clearly. And I think um, are offering uh, a view of technology that is um, much more patient and much more thoughtful than I think some a lot of the reactions around technology I've seen from different church folks. I mean, I remember a year ago, there was a mega church pastor who launched church as an app. I don't remember that person's name and I don't necessarily know if I want to call them out anyway, but I remember that uh, it was quite a kerfuffle. Like people were mad and they basically were like, church can't be an app. It's It can't be a digital experience, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and here we are. So I think that um, y'all's thoughtfulness has been really helpful. I think a dimension maybe that I would want to add uh, is an inspection of the technology of church itself. I think that y'all have looked at sort of like digital technology. What values does it have? What of those values are, are helpful and life affirming? What of those, what are we losing by using some of these tools. Um, but I also think maybe one part of the conversation that sometimes goes missing for pastors is being very critical about the technologies of contemporary church that we have and how well do those actually align with some of our deeply held values around what it means to be like followers of Jesus. Um, and are some of those technologies getting in the way of those values? And how do we wrestle and innovate in light of that as well? Is that like um, 
Jesus says, uh, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, and we spend $8 million on a building? I mean, I don't... Um, yes and no. Like, I'm not anti-building. Uh, and I'm mm-hmm. s- Like, space matters a lot. And I think y'all have done a really great job of talking about the importance of an embodiment um, and how much, like, bodies matter and how important it is to consider... Uh, how we're communicating the gospel in light of being embodied creatures. Um, but I think also there, there are stories that y'all have shared where it's really clear that the building itself is teaching us something about the experience of church that is not right. Like this tension mm. of if you ask a person um, where, where is the church and they're like thinking about it, they're like, Oh, well, it's the people. Um, but we also always say, oh, I'm going to church and we mean going to a building. Or like if you ask the kids, where is the church? And they start like going for the walls first or the chairs first. Yeah. Like there's a there's a tension between the amount of attention and time and expense that goes into our buildings mm-hmm. and what we actually theologically claim to believe about what the church is. And I also think, um, a lot of people, when they're being critical of the church around buildings, they focus on the expense side. They sort of are like, uh, rightly uh, following Dr. King, budgets are moral documents. And so they look at our, our church budgets and they see somewhere between 40 to 60% or more is going to the building. Um, I think that's fine to raise questions about. I think maybe the bigger problem is the way in which revenue is tied to the building and tied to a certain way of using the building. Hmm. In other words, churches make money by being event spaces. Um, And I think that that shapes pastoral imagination just as much as um, how big the, how much the building costs. I think the way that churches uh, sort of funnel us into thinking about what we have to do in order to survive is is a problem as well. Well, I I think you've made a good point uh, a little earlier of saying, not only thinking about the technology that we're currently using to during this pandemic, but this is also an opportunity for ministers and churches to reflect back on what was before the pandemic and assess their forms of technology, whether it be uh, screens or hymnals or the way that they decorate the church or the way that they structure worship or whatever the case is and say, Hey, let's go back. Even with this framework, not let's not just assess zoom, but let's assess other forms of ways that we're doing things like even Wednesday night events or youth things and say, how can we be innovative? Which I we're going to get to a little later on with you, maybe doing some thought experiments but also how can we take this framework of values and say, you know, this isn't a podcast that we're just saying, let's get back to the old way before the pandemic. We're saying, hey, let's assess even before the pandemic, what were ways that we're building up our values of a church that were important? And what were some things that we were doing in the past that were not and we can leave behind? I think that's really thoughtful. Um. Thank you. Y'all sparked it for me. Uh, And I think, so like one example of this that I wonder about, um, I'm, this is just sort of like a go for the throat example. So I apologize, but I think (laughs) there, there has been on this podcast, a lot of talk about the technology of the sermon. Um, And that there is, um, in many traditions, a theological understanding of what is happening during a sermon um, without maybe inspecting one that the sermon itself is a technology. Uh, Mm -hmm. What is that technology for? Um, And what are the pros and cons of the technology of the sermon? So like, Mm -hmm. I would imagine that in Jesus's day, he does sermons because it's a form of mass communication. Uh, You don't have access to writing and dissemination of information very easily. Uh, And so the sermon is like mass media for (laughs) for a century. You stand on a Um, hill and yell. Exactly. Um, And 
there are some times where I wonder um, if not so much like has that technology outlived its usefulness. I don't think so. The sermon is a really powerful thing. Um, but I do wonder if we are over-reliant on that technology for traditional reasons rather than a, than this more like, it is a technology. What does it do? What is it mm-hmm. good at? Um, and I think one of the challenges of, of it is that it definitionally turns people into spectators. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, even granting all of the powerful theological things that can happen in a sermon, um, the fact that it creates spectators is something to pay attention to. And when many of our, speaking of white Protestant um, congregations, rely so heavily on the sermon, and when so many people rely so heavily on the Sunday worship service as their sort of like primary explicit expression of their faith, I wonder what it does uh, that so much of our experience of Christianity is wrapped up in being a spectator. Mm. Um, so that that's one place where, yeah, I wonder about that technology. Uh, and I wonder if just finding a way to replicate it <laughs> or to get back to it mm. is the most helpful way to think about that technology. Yeah. Um, so what going back to the user-centered design type of way, like, yeah. Can you, I think Jeremy was going to lead us a little bit with, with you about bringing that idea of user-centered design or uh, I, I, do we want to use the word user for church? I, I don't know, Ben, if there's another word, like, I don't know. Sometimes I hear user, I think of consumer, I think mm-hmm. of a drug addict. Wanna, yeah. Or do, <laughs> yeah. Or do we want to want to create is there, can we church tweak it design? a little bit? Yeah. For our church design. Participant. Design? Oh, participant centered design or something that. Uh, oh, maybe uh, to do a pastoral alliteration, uh, basically like disciples uh, directed design. Oh, could be. oh, oh yeah, look at yeah. that. Oh, look That's, at that. Uh-huh, my pastor is <laughs> doing that. Um, just because one of our values uh, that we believe that is important for the church is for it not to be consumer like it's not it's not just a um you know someone sitting and consuming while someone else performs things so 100 percent, yeah so jeremy uh you you wanted to talk a little bit about um our current experience uh experiments and things going on in the church and been kind of walking with us through that process so all of us have we've talked a lot about the the drive to innovate and design and try to catch up with the moment because the church has been dragged kicking and screaming into the COVID world. Very few of us were desiring this sort of completely online experience that many of us have been forced into. Uh, Some of us were, we were, a lot of us were already live streaming, but that wasn't the thing. It was an addition. It was a secondary, it was a voyeur experience. A lot of us have felt the need to innovate, to prove that we're still working when people can't see us, uh, when we're not up on the platform in front of folks every week. Some of us have felt a strong drive to produce or perish in the church world. And so all of us have experiments. Uh, All of us have been trying things um, from Zoom Sunday schools to live streams to uh, what does Holy Week look like? When you can't be in the building, how do we do communion? What does the Eucharist mean? And so I was wondering if you could help us, Ben, think about some of these experiments that we like, that we've been, maybe we've stumbled into something good, but we don't know how to continue it when most people simply want to go back. No one is asking me, how are we going to continue this thing? Everyone who calls me on the phone asks, when is church going to open again? And I tell them it was it's not closed. We've been doing church. And they're like, yeah, I get it. But when do I get to come back and sing songs? Um, well, in that, just really quickly, I want, I want to highlight how much that speaks to what our technologies of church have taught people. Mm. That 
that even that that is the knee-jerk reaction is like, when are we going to get back to church? Where did they learn that? Um, like what about their experience of church and the technology of church so far has told them that they aren't doing church right now? Um, it just, I think that's a really like clear example of like something about the technologies of church that we are using is running counter to what we really want to be happening around people's imagination about what church is, but sorry, I cut you off. No, that's, that's great. So like something that we've discovered um, at Townview is we went to an online worship experience that's set up in stations. That's the language we're using where the user progresses through the service and has the opportunity to spend as much time or energy as they want or need with any given element of the service. And we discovered that to keep people um, locked in to make sure they weren't just viewing, we added the technology, the technique of, uh, we call it a pause moment. There are places where the service breaks the fourth wall and comes out of the computer to force the user to interact with it, even if it's just them and the computer. So you'd be going through the service and you'd read a scripture and you would hear another congregant offer a prayer and then it would say, pause, here are things to consider or here are things to do or here's an open-ended question. And we've, we've really liked it. But that's, that's a completely new element that's never existed in our Sunday morning 50 to 70 minute experience before. So I'm wondering yeah. how to hold on to the good that we might have stumbled into. Yeah. So this makes me think a couple of things like one on kind of on a theoretical level and thinking about kind of what it would mean to be another sort of a subspecies of user centered design is called human centered design. Um, so maybe we can talk about humans uh, instead of users. So um, it Ooh, sounds I like, like yeah, yeah. Um, our, I have seen some pastors respond to folks who are saying, oh, I'm, I'm fine with remote church. I like it. It is convenient. Um, and I don't really feel like I'm losing all that much a pastoral response that I have seen uh, is to sort of like theologically berate that person uh, to various levels of intensity. <laughs> uh, basically like theologically, here are all the reasons why you are wrong for thinking that these two experiences are interchangeable. Um, I understand why you would feel that way, uh, especially in this moment uh, where you might feel that your job is threatened as a pastor uh, and you might be seeing that giving is going down and you're like, these things are not interchangeable. You need to come back and give money so that I can have a job. I get all of that. Um, but a, a more human-centered design approach will take a pause and understand that what is actually happening is that the human in front of you is telling you my experience of the worship service is interchangeable with my experience of online worship. So even if we're doing to us, what we're creating is completely different. It's being mm -hmm. received at the same value. Exactly. Um, and I wonder sometimes, uh, and Jeremy and I have talked about this a little bit offline. Jeremy gave uh, Jeremy gave me this really fascinating definition of nostalgia. And I don't know, Jeremy, did you go and look up who actually? I didn't, said but it? I think it's Greg Boyd. Okay, so uh, presumably Greg Boyd has this definition of nostalgia, which is uh, missing a time that never was. Um, and I wonder sometimes if in moments like this pastors are being driven by nostalgia around the experience of worship in that uh, 
those of us who have received advanced theological education experience worship in a very rich, nuanced way because we know what everything means. Um, and so when we walk through a liturgy, we're receiving the content from the liturgy itself, but we also have all the background knowledge of what, the, what is happening that helps us to have a, a thicker experience. Um, and we, I think, sometimes assume that our congregants are having the same kind of thick experience of that liturgy. And I think that this moment might be communicating that that is not true. Um, and instead of telling them how wrong they are, uh, <laughs> starting from the reality of we are not having the same experience of you as you are and designing from there is much more interesting. And I think, uh, Jeremy, what you're, I think what y'all are experimenting with is maybe a way to bridge that gap of bringing some of the thickness and richness of the liturgical experience that you as a pastor have. And by breaking the fourth wall, inviting people in to that kind of space and giving them that richer, fuller experience. Um, so I think that's one just sort of like conversation I've seen where a more human-centered design approach would be much more fruitful. Um, but I, I think, Jeremy, it, you were asking me a little bit more of a how-to kind of question as well. Yeah, so we've found this thing, and it's good for us in our current moment. And so this coming Sunday, we are having an in-person worship experience. Mm -hmm. And we're going to try to put a pause in it, which has only ever existed in text. Mm -hmm. in, a, in a space where time didn't matter when someone's doing it themselves. Now they're in the building and there's anxiety and tension about how long you should be in a building mm -hmm. and how much you should be talking. Um, mm -hmm. and so we're, we're going to try to do text and mm. put it up on the screens and see if we can give people a moment to pause and reflect and how it works in that space. So what, how do I evaluate this experiment? And what if everyone's just like, nope, I just want it to be like it was. <laughs> um, I mean, at yeah, least at least 10% of people are going to tell you that they want it to be exactly like what it was. And then 10% of people are going to tell you that they loved it. And then 80% of people are going to wait to see what you do before deciding how they feel about it. Um, <laughs> so you can just go ahead and count on that. Um, but I think in terms of like evaluating, you could, you could do it a couple of different ways. So, um, from a human-centered design perspective, the way to evaluate is what people's experience is. Um, and you can ask people directly about their experience. So being intentional about following up with a certain sort of sample size of folks after the service and asking them, how, how did you find that experience? What about it worked well? What about it was frustrating or uh, lacking in some way? Um, and then um, there's also, though, a challenge. So one, I would say do that. The other thing I would say is there is a real challenge around say versus do. We, we think about this a lot in innovation space around when we're really trying to understand people and design for them. Um, human beings will say that they like something to you because they don't want to hurt your feelings. Um, and also, we are not always the best predictor predictors of our own future behavior. So someone might say, oh, I'm going to come to this kind of service every single Sunday. It's amazing. Uh, and then they don't for lots of reasons. Um, I think everyone so, in the church world has experienced that at some <laughs> point. Right? Yes. Like anything that you've done, you're like, especially when you do it for the first time, you're like, oh my gosh. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, it's so amazing. Mm -hmm. And then you're six months then and you're like, Wait, no one's what here in the world. <laughs> yeah, where did everybody go? Yeah. Um, so, um, but I think at the same time, um, yeah, people vote with their feet, uh, and so like there will be signal in your congregation if you continue to do service like that. And it's not so much like I understand why you would do it this way, but it's less like 
do people come to this or do people not come to this? I think a more interesting question is what people come to this kind of experience and what people don't come to this kind of experience? Uh, and what do we wanna do about different people having different kinds of experiences? Um, and I think you might find out that you have, you want to have two kinds of experiences going forward for do di two different kinds of folks who are both a part of your local church. Um, so so I, I like that idea, but I think the last pod, the last episode that we recorded, Jordan brought up a really good question about um, how do you avoid, what was it, Jordan? How do you avoid two different church, like creating two different churches? Can you elaborate a little bit more? I think it was Jeremy who asked that. Oh, was that Jeremy? Oh, sorry. That's, that's just always my concern with any time we silo people around preference, uh, even things that seem as obvious to churches as having a youth group make me a little nervous when you can't properly integrate them into the life of the community, you're building a smaller church inside of your church. Some people only come to a church and go to a specific Sunday school and they leave and they don't participate in the rest of the things or they only go to a worship service. And when you start building these stylized different services like a traditional and a contemporary, um, you start to mitose in your congregation and people will pull towards the homogenous group that they connect with. And it's like we were talking about in the last episode, something that we've all said, the three of us that we think is important is that you go to church with people that aren't exactly like you, that we have spaces with people and we live in community with people who maybe think differently, have different backgrounds, have different experiences, have different political preferences. I mean, there's this, the, the quote that again, Dr. King is now unfortunately bordering on a cliche that Sundays are the most segregated times in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I am empathetic to pastors wanting to resist the consumerization of church, uh, specifically around wanting to be a place that forms people to love difference. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I basically only hear that as a complaint against change rather than as like a constructive beginning of a real conversation of what technologies the church needs to explore to do that kind of formative work. Because even the churches that are the most explicit about a theology of reconciliation if you look at the statistics, they are the most segregated, like the mainline Protestant, more liberal denominations. Last time I checked were more segregated than their more conservative peers. And so, yes, I'm incredibly empathetic to the need to do that. But I think that argument is used as a defense against change rather than as a place to begin to be critical about what would it actually look like to form people who hmm. love difference? Because it's not in the building right now. We're going to have to go and find it or make it rather than, yeah, just sort of keep doing what we're doing because we're trying to fight the consumerization of church. Yeah. That's a great point. Well, and also church, we're not in churches. We're not just trying to give people what they already want I mean, I don't know how better to say that, but we're trying to create spaces that form people to want certain things, right? So mm -hmm. there might be people who are not interested in engaging and participating in a service because they're just quiet people or it's hard for them to interact with strangers or for whatever reason. But we want to create a space where those people over time can feel comfortable and learn to engage, um, just for one example. So what would you say to that sort of critique of like, if we just sort of give different groups of people what their personalities naturally want, then we're not creating this community that's called the church. And the, yeah. that thought always has, when I try to think about that as a pastor, I get anxious because if I try to draw someone in, if I try to form someone too harshly, too quickly, if um, I'm trying to create a participatory experience because I think that matches the values of the segment of the kingdom that my community is being called to live in, if a congregant doesn't want to engage, 
they can go to the mega church down the street. I don't mean to bash that mode of church, but they can go there and just spectate and Boo, just mega church. No, I'm just kidding. No, yeah, we don't. <laughs> I don't hate mega churches, but if it's much easier to be anonymous there. And if I'm trying to force someone to not be anonymous and they want to be, they can leave. And then I lose the ability to disciple them into a community, communitized to a person who lives in community. Yeah. I mean, so this is, I think this tension is the most difficult tension around human-centered design for pastors. Because there is a way in which when I first introduced the idea of user-centered design, this quote-unquote room, nodding along. We're like, yes, of course, design with people in mind. Yes, of course, get user input. But there is this point, this strange tension of formation. Um, And we are not in the business of giving people, quote-unquote, whatever they want. Um, And like, that, that is a real tension. It is not imagined. Um, it is an incredibly challenging um, place to be in to try to bring sort of the technologies of church and the technologies of human-centered design together. Um, so, so I... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Taylor. I, I have a pretty... Um, maybe I have a very specific example you could help me think through. Mm-hmm. Kind of relates to all of this. Mm -hmm. So I just want to take my youth Sunday school on zoom. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're able to get together, but there is a zoom fatigue within the youth group and no one turns on their cameras. They just hop on because you know, all of them woke up five minutes before that. If rolled over if yeah, or maybe just now. And I have, my teachers that are bringing 110%, 150% to engage with them for the next 30 minutes. One of my big values with the youth group and with my students is how they can be present in a community. Um, So for example, when we would go to things in person, if we would go to camp for a week, I would, I was very upfront about this, but I would take their phones away for a whole week so that they could be physically present and fully because that was a value. And that's kind of a cool thing about camp. Mm -hmm. So I know a lot of other, especially youth pastors are dealing with this exact example of zoom fatigue of my kids. I need a way for my kids to connect. And this is currently is the only way possible that I know of, but how (laughs) that we know of, right? So how with this idea, can we be, how can you help me or anyone else listening be innovative outside of just this idea of zoom without giving up the value of, of being present in a way? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great question. And I think one, I also want to highlight that you have already, you've shown good human empathy by understanding why it is that your students are reluctant to turn on their zoom cameras like, okay. that's a crucial question. You could just be mad and be like, they're not turning on their Zoom cameras. What's wrong with them? But I've spent some time talking with them and they're like, look, I just, I set an yeah. alarm for 9.35 or 9.25 and at 9.30 I hop on. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that is great and helpful information. So you, there are kind of two approaches you could take. Okay. One is... Um, you could do sort of like a prototype where you have this piece of information and you use it to create a prototype experience that you think might get a better mutual outcome. So one thing I could imagine is this Sunday youth group is a pajama party. Um, And so basically what you're saying is everyone is going to be in their pajamas and we're going to laugh about how silly our pajamas are uh, and have like some kind of conversation or set of activities around the fact that we are all in our pajamas at this experience. Okay, great. Um, the other thing that you could do, oh, and also that may suck. They may hate it. I don't know. That's why it's a <laughs> prototype. Like yes. that's the point uh, is let's test and see if this kind of authenticity resonates with this particular audience or not. Because um, I, th- I think 
often what happens is uh, youth pastors or pastors in general will get like a deer in the headlights mm-hmm. where they there's just so many innovative options, but I don't know yet if they will work. So I'm just going to stay with the status quo versus mm-hmm. trying the pajamas parties. Yeah. Well, and I think, um, so, okay. So I have an MDiv. I went to divinity school. My experience of myself and of people who go to divinity school is that we are people who have often been very academically successful for most of our lives and are very scared of failure. And what we need to do is go to therapy to get over that. Why you got to call me out so directly? I love this. (laughs) um, So that's one thing Um, we need. We need to like down regulate our response to failure, especially if we're going to be innovators, basically like it doesn't matter if the pajama party fails. Like God still loves you. Your vocation is not in question. You're not an idiot. Like, you try to you had a pajama party and it didn't go well. <laughs> try something else next week. Yeah, um, that's great. So that's one thing. Um, okay. The the other thing I would say is like you could also present this problem to the students themselves and okay. basically say, "I really value. I think presence and authenticity is important." And my experience of our time together tells me that you also think that that is important. I am concerned that that is not happening the way that we're currently doing things. Mm-hmm. How would you, how would you solve that problem? What okay. would you do? And that's why I made the comment of like, Zoom is the tool that you know. My suspicion is that these kids are hanging out with each other in all sorts of fascinating ways that you don't know about yet. Yeah. Um, and they will tell you about them if you ask. And um, that question that you brought up still frames it in the transformational way that we as pastors want to guide and lead our members, right? So you didn't just say, what would be more fun? Or right. What would you enjoy Who cares? <laughs> right. But instead it's like, how can we achieve this value that we, that I find important and I hope I've taught you to find important. And then we work together to create that. Right. Yeah. So here, here's my, my pushback. And I think this is the biggest, the bigger obstacle here is you did not teach this generation of kids to find authenticity important. Hmm. Like every study we have done on Gen Z is that like they value authenticity in a way that is like unrivaled and surpasses even millennial who are supposedly the most authentic generation <laughs> ever. Um, and so I think, I think the real challenge of human-centered design for pastors is that we do not trust our people. Mm. Um, we, we are in the desire business. I think, Jordan, you put that really well, that, that we are about shaping our own desires and the desires of others. Um, And at the same time, I think that we need to do a better job of trusting that at root desire comes from God. Mm. And so if we will genuinely listen to people and we will be curious, we will find that the desires that people have are God given and the kinds of desires that we want to join. Um, And so I think that's the real trouble is we just don't trust our people's desires uh, and we don't have the patience to listen to the really root desires that people have and then start to build experiences that uh, supplement, increase, direct, uh, and resource those God-given desires. All right, let's move on to listener questions. We have um, two today. So uh, the first one is for you, Jordan. Um, Listener Chris, a devout and frustrated Catholic, (laughs) which uh, I believe Jeremy That's most Catholics right now, right? (laughs) Ask, what use is our religion to us if if it requires embodiment when embodiment isn't always possible? 
Um, so I wanted to... In his email, also... it brought up uh, questions about the persecuted church, an underground church, and what about patristic and desert fathers sitting out there in their caves, and we think they know something about God, and they don't go to church? Yeah, so my initial reaction to that question is embodiment is always possible. It can't be impossible because we are embodied. It's just a fact. Um, I guess I'm trying to get at the heart of the question. So, th so he's asking, what use is our religion to us if it requires something that's impossible, which is being in person? Is that? Do you think that's what he's asking? I think the question is pro is more around like I can't get to the host. I am separated. I cannot attend mass. And mass mm -hmm. is the point. Mm -hmm. I cannot access the means of grace. Yeah. Well, a Catholic would be better suited to answer this question. But I do know from my Catholic friends that their tradition also has a lot to say about ascetic practices. And um, like you said, like the desert fathers and mothers and different um, times in the church's history when it has emphasized those other expressions besides just the mass. Um, and maybe that's something that we can say to the modern Catholic church of like, Hey, don't forget, like there's this huge long tradition of um, mysticism and um, these other like more solo expressions of faith besides just the, the mass. I don't know that that would be how I would start to answer that question, but I don't have a full answer. That's great. Um, uh, ben, this one's going to be for you. This is from Matt. Uh, and he says, how do we avoid the values of efficiency and efficacy being the only values that we use to innovate in the church? Uh, the joke answer is that the church is doing a fantastic job of avoiding those values and <laughs> needn't worry about it at all. That's great. And that's some of the articles that I've been reading from people in the church saying, the church has done such a poor job of being efficient and and in embracing these values that we need to embrace them now. But anyway, mm -hmm. I digress. It's time for us to That's a whole other conversation. Up. Is sort of the stuff I read a lot. Um, I'm also like, I understand. Uh, we, I don't want to go to a church who holds as a primary value efficiency that sounds terrible uh and i would have questions about an institution that in some ways is organized around sabbath valuing efficiency that highly um <laughs> it's a problem yeah um but at the same time um uh, one of the thing one of the sort of like main things that is touted about human-centered design for instance is actually that it is highly efficient uh, because it uh, does not waste time creating things that people don't want mm. um, or that people will not use or that will not be good for people. Uh, and so I wonder if it's about, sure, let's be very suspicious about the value of efficiency. Um, let's have pastors go to therapy because they are worried about their inefficiencies. Um, and, but at the same time, let's wonder about the places where we could be more efficient. And what does that really mean? Um, and if talking to people, I think talking to people as a part of the way that we design church is a way to be much more efficient that aligns with, a, with values that we already have about serving people about helping people to grow in discipleship um, and things of that nature. So, yeah, I think it's a little bit of give and take. Aren't there also some areas in which we don't want to be efficient? I mean, if you're thinking about like pastoral care, that seems like a much different realm where, hey, we actually want to include some time to meander and to talk about whatever's going on or to not be efficient, right? And then there are other parts of maybe um, spiritual formation that we would want to be more efficient in how we communicate information to people. I think that's exactly right. I think um, there a challenge and problem that we have um, in this culture is that we we think of ourselves as products that need to be maximally efficient, 
Um, so there's this really great article that came out, uh, I think it was actually on Buzzfeed maybe last year called the burnout generation. Uh, it was talking about particularly millennials who um, have, we have turned ourselves into products for companies to hire slash buy. Uh, and that means that we have to be maximally efficient at all times. Uh, and so we are constantly doing self-help. We're constantly getting certifications. We're constantly learning new skills. All of our hobbies need to become jobs. Like there is no room for like purposeless quote unquote activity. Mm. Um, and our being is not meant to be efficient. And so, yeah, I think I a hundred percent agree with you, Jordan, like we should think very carefully about where we want to introduce efficiency uh, and what kinds of efficiencies do we want to introduce? So like pastoral care is a fascinating example and I'm gonna like brag on Jeremy a little bit on this, but Jeremy uh, as a pastor has done a really good job of equipping his congregants to do pastoral care, which means that pastoral care at Jeremy's church is much more efficient because it is not dependent upon the free time, quote unquote, of the pastor. Um, and so his congregants can offer each other uh, pastoral care because they know how to. And so in that way, I think we are getting at a really high, a multiple really high values of like growing in discipleship, of being present with each other, of being with each other in struggle while also like greatly increasing the efficiency of those processes. So I think, um, I, yeah, I, I hear in what you're saying, Jordan, like being suspicious and critical about efficiency. And I think we should be, but also be creative about what efficiency could mean for us. All right, now we're going to move to finding hope. So this is a place where we bring a thing you're seeing in the world or in the church that gives you hope. So, uh, Jeremy, let's start with you. Yeah, uh, uh, I get excited about uh, ministry with young people. I work with all different ages, but when I see young people getting fired up about something around their faith, it really gives me hope for the future. And this past week, I had the chance to talk with our high schoolers about, uh, we went and just took an hour to sit with the book of Micah, and all of them, like, lost their minds about it. That's sort of like, why isn't this all we ever do? Kind of stuff. <laughs> like, how come no one reads Micah? Uh, so now they're, they all want to be Micah scholars or something. But the, the minor prophets in particular have so much to say to this current moment of, like, disarray. The world it feels like it's falling apart for a lot of our people. And the prophets talk right into that moment. And so I, I've been trying to introduce the skills of reading the prophets to our high schoolers. And it like we hit Micah and all heaven broke loose. That's great. Ben, how about you? Yeah. Um, I think one thing that is, has been encouraging to me over the past couple of weeks is the difference in my Facebook feed uh, between to how white people are responding to what is happening today versus how those same folks were responding like five years ago. Um, yeah. It's one, I should say like, I was not the king of wokeness five years ago either. Um, and I have learned a lot since then, but I, I have been genuinely encouraged that there is so much more at least stated support for what uh, our like brothers and sisters of color are demanding at this point than five years ago. Um, yeah. I don't want to be overly optimistic necessarily about exactly what that's going to cash out into right now, mm -hmm. but it is a difference that is noticeable uh, and that, is making me hopeful. That's great. Jordan? Mine is going to be so much less serious and important than that. But um, so I've been thinking a lot the last couple of years about how the world is losing its 
like insects. Like I read like this book called The Moth Snowstorm and I forget the author's name now, um, but maybe we can find the resource. Um, but it's so good. It talks about how like you used to drive down the road like 40 years ago and you'd have all these moths, like a snowstorm hitting your car at night, right? And now like you drive at night and like barely any bugs hit your car. And it's because we're losing a lot of the di diversity of insects that we have in our world. Um, and Taylor and I just went to the woods for a week in Missouri, rural Missouri. And I don't think we're losing that many insects, guys. <laughs> there are bugs everywhere. We had ticks. We had we had everything. And then I also, in my garden, have like all these cabbage worms eaten up. My broccoli, my kale. I'm like, you know what? The bugs are having a good year. That's where I'm finding hope. I'm finding hope in a similar area. There is a, if you need something else to listen to that's fun and uh, you can learn something new, it's called the, um, oh shoot, why am I forgetting the name? Oh, uh, The Nature Guys. It's a podcast called The Nature Guys. And it's these two guys, one's been a naturalist uh, for like, 40 years and they just talk about different things in nature. So the last episode was on dragonflies and the episode about before that was about uh, native bees in America. And yeah, just the fact that there are people that care deeply about the world and that and learning something like is just something hopeful to listen to in the midst of all the chaos. Right? I the think you're continues. just trying. Yeah. I think you're just trying to flirt with your bug loving wife. No, no. I did introduce him to that. She did introduce it to me. <laughs> so, um, Jeremy, Jordan, Ben, uh, this has been awesome. It's been great to see you today. Yeah, this has been Thanks, fun. Ben. Yeah, thank oh, you no. so much, Ben. Thank you all. I really enjoyed this conversation a lot. Thank you for hosting me, and thank you for creating this platform for these really important conversations. Happy to play a small part in it. Also, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe to our podcast for new episodes. Leave us a comment. Rate us on iTunes. It's a way that we get found by other people. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook. Also, uh, we'll update you with things, uh, upcoming podcasts, extra resources, and some behind the scenes stuff. Uh, if you have a question that you want to ask us about the church or about technology, let us know. You can write your thoughts, questions, and concerns to our email address, virtuallychurch at gmail.com. Maybe next time we can spend some more time answering your questions. So thanks again, and we will see you next week.